Amen. First Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five. I, I have titled this Paul's instruction to the Corinthians, but that's kind of a cop out title. You know, you could use that for anything in the book of Corinthians. So I think better, better title would be, and it won't probably be printed on the disc if you do that. Um, Paul sets the standard for the Corinthians. I like that better. So anyway, Paul sets the standard for the Corinthians. Um, Psalm 119, longest psalm, longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 9, poses a question. How can a young man cleanse his way? Good question, don't you think? And the important thing there is the young man. Old man's no problem. Give him a cup of milk, put him in an easy chair. He's done. A fair question, and one that I think all the world at one time or another searches for that answer, some uh, fixed point of reference that would provide all that we need in order to fix what is messed up with us. I mean, the popular worldview of our culture is taken from human convention, human ideas, human perspective that changes every other day um, and all kinds of deals with symptoms and the outward appearances instead of causes, uh, therapy and medication. And a um, hundred years ago, doctors were prescribing electroshock therapy and uh, hot baths to help people. I don't know that the success rates have changed all that dramatically. I kind of wonder if the suicide rates of psychiatrists have gone down in recent years. I, I recently read an article how many people, and if you think about people in the world, you can understand this. Many people in the world are kind of amazed at the continuing popularity of religion. They're like, what are people doing? Don't they get it? Don't they understand? Don't they see it? You know? And it is, I think, amazing. We know the church is maybe really messed up, but God loves his people. God loves his people. And God will use anybody. God will minister to the heart of a person that is sincerely seeking him in a church that, I mean, is beyond belief. God will, will bless and he will use that. And I think that's a great illustration of the fact of how God uses the church of Corinth. The first letter to the Corinthians written by the Holy Spirit of God with the help of the Apostle Paul and maybe this guy Sosthenes as a secretary, we're not really sure about him. Whatever the case, the Holy Spirit is the author. It was written, we believe, during the Apostle Paul's a three-year stay in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Somewhere around 56 AD or so, we don't know for sure, he had visited Corinth during the second missionary journey. And we find all the details for that if you look in Acts chapter 19. Paul was traveling from Macedonia. You know, he was, he was over in Turkey, saw that vision of the Macedonian man, traveled over to Macedonia, <clears throat> started out in Philippi, got thrown in jail, got beaten, left Philippi, went to uh, Thessalonica, got chased out of town by a bunch of crazy Jewish people, went down to Berea, had a really great time there, got chased out of town by a bunch of Jewish people, and then wound up in Athens where he preached on the Areopagus and was not very well received, but some people listened to him. And then he made his way down to Corinth. Actually, by the time he arrives in Corinth, he is totally by himself. And uh, it's about 40 miles from Athens to Corinth, 40 miles as the crow flies. You know, even today, different cities have a particular kind of character or profile. And, and Corinth certainly did. You know, I mean, seriously, though, if you think of South Pasadena is very different than uh, El Monte. They are. And uh, thank you, Anne. I appreciate that. And, and uh, San Gabriel is different than Beverly Hills, duh. And, and on and on and on. Every city has a particular makeup and a little bit different. And uh, Corinth had a, a personality of its own. Corinth was very prosperous. 
It's on a very thin part of the isthmus in Greek, and there were a bunch of little uh, harbors right there, and because the abundance of harbors, more commerce, a lot of money. Very prosperous. They, they really made a lot of money. Also interesting, a lot of harbors, a lot of sailors. You find that, you find a community with a lot of sailors, it has an effect upon the moral structure throughout history. It really does. You know, go down to San Pedro, you know, back in the 40s and 50s. Hey. Um, but this is what happened to, uh, to Corinth, unfortunately. I think actually the Greek world was kind of generally lacking in, in moral structure. Uh, compared with Jerusalem, with what Paul was used to, it was very different. Uh, Corinth as a city had sort of missed the boat on morality altogether. And in, in Corinth, you're probably more likely to be accused of being overly moral. Don't try and push your, you know, your values on us. You ever get that from people? And, and, you know, and then how do you explain to somebody? How, I'm not trying to push my values on you. It's not my values anyway. I didn't write the book. You know, it's, it's God's values. And anyway, in Corinth, morals were at a premium. What is curious is that the Lord would choose this city to do such a work. I, I suppose it, it kind of confirms the idea that the light shines brightest in the darkest place. Corinth is a place where Paul first encountered Aquila and Priscilla, who would remain his close friends for many years, ministry friends. Uh, Acts 18 tells us, upon arriving in Corinth, Paul began reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue, as was his custom, persuading them. And then upon, sometime later, we don't know how long Paul was there by himself, uh, Timothy and Silas arrived from Macedonia, the scripture tells us Paul testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Acts 18 gives us the impression that there was some really powerful opposition from the Jewish people, the Jewish community. And Acts 18.9 tells us that about the same time, the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision. Is it ever interesting to you when you're in the midst of a difficult circumstance and all of a sudden you get encouragement from a particular situation that is very specifically tailored to your need, you know? That is the most awesome. Th the terrible thing is when that doesn't happen. But when it does, you know that that's from God. Somebody just sort of randomly walks up to you at church and says, you know, I was thinking, you need to know that God, he's really, you know, sometimes it doesn't seem like there's a lot of fruit from the efforts you're putting out, but God is faithful and he will not forget the hard work and all that you've done, you know? And I mean, they just walk away and you're thinking, was that an angel? Who was that? You know, it's just amazing. Why? Because you connect it to the Lord's hand upon your life and his faithfulness. Again, Acts 18, 9, the Lord appears to Paul. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Awesome. But think for a minute about the specifics. No one will attack you to hurt you. What was Paul thinking about? What was going on? Um, he was not accustomed to being alone in a situation. At one point, uh, following this, Paul is even dragged before the Roman judgment seat. And just as the Lord said, he protected Paul. He remained in Corinth for a year and a half, which was on the second missionary journey when he was there, the longest period that he had stayed in any city to that point. We understand from the context in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 9, that this actually is Paul's second letter. There was another letter to the Corinthians. We don't have it, so this to us is 1 Corinthians. And there, you know, theologians out there have a lot of crazy theories. Try not to pay a lot of attention to that. You know, this is the first letter starts here and, ends, and it's part of the second, you know. 1 Corinthians, we all, we're all on the same page here. It deals, the letter deals in a lot of detail with the problems of the church. Everything from sexual immorality, marriage, divisions, gossip in the church, the proper conduct of the communion service, um, the exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Spends a lot of time, goes into detail on that. The attitudes and motives behind what we do, the why we do what we do. It appears all these people in Corinth really not very spiritual, which is great for us because it offers us the example of how to deal with our own problems, beings that 
we're not really very spiritual either. And so, very helpful. The letter begins with this amazing, wonderful greeting, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 4, if, if you want to read along. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the hammer drops. Um, not really, though. Paul, Paul was, at least as far as I can tell, reasonably good at keeping his own counsel. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he advises us, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And Paul seems to be very gentle with the people. Uh, from Corinth, uh, but at the same time, making no bones about the seriousness of the issues. He starts out with a big number one, divisions and factions in the church. And the interesting thing is you read through the letter, he works his way through what is a pretty serious laundry list of problems that are threatening the work that God's spirit has intended. And he over and over again, he circles back to a couple of specific root issues with the church. That is, first of all, in, there is an absence of sincere and functional working humility in the church of Corinth. And that is, people of Corinth, as, gosh, a lot of people everywhere, are not seeing themselves as they really are. They weren't taking uh, the encouragement of, of Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Interestingly enough, Paul wrote the book of Romans during his first trip to Corinth. And so Romans 12, 3 says, I say to you through the grace given to me, everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. And it's interesting to think that he was looking at the Corinthians as he wrote that to the Romans, you know. Combined with another problem, the appreciation of other people based on a purely human model of value and worth. Uh, an intellectual facade, worldly credentials, monetary accomplishment, the, the recognition and appreciation of other people, it, worldly mindedness, basically, all that stuff. You know, Jesus is a source of great advice, I've found, through the years in Scripture. And Jesus, one of the things I like the most is when Jesus, or God in any context, when he asks questions Mostly because he doesn't need the answer. He already knows the answer to the question before he asks it. In John chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he asks them a question. I want you to listen to it. How can you believe who receive honor one from another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Great question. It's just deep. It may sound a little bit strange to you, but these things that the Corinthians appreciated, the worldly-minded uh, attributes and qualities in other people, these are things people really strive for in their lives. And I think maybe some of us here today are being ensnared in the same foolishness. People are willing to trade their lives and everything that they have that is of real value for these things. These are the things that from small childhood we are taught that we need in order to be successful. The, you know, the outward decorations of a life successfully lived in the world of men. No one tells you that the opinions of people are next to meaningless. People don't know who you are. They see you. They may walk, even people who work with you. They don't know who you are inside, what your intentions and your motives are. God knows. His opinion is everything. The opinions of people, not so much. I mean, you can go from the most popular in the world to the most hated in a 24-hour news cycle. Ask Bill Cosby. He knows. 
No one ever told us that there's no such thing as financial security. There, it doesn't exist. In spite of what you might like to believe or persuade yourself, if I could just get 15, 20 million ahead. No, it, it's not. Let me tell you, you have a lot of money, you can lose a lot of money fast. And I, you see it, people in the, in the media all the time. And as for academic approval, some of the most ridiculous ideas in the history of the world are promoted and cultivated by men of letters. Stuff average people wouldn't believe for anything. I mean, stuff that average people laugh at. I think of, <coughs> excuse me, Stephen Jay Gould, the uh, 1980s and 90s uh, poster boy for evolution from Harvard University. And his theory that really put him on the map, put him on the cover of Time magazine, punctuated equilibrium. Does that sound great? Punctuated, I invented punctuated equilibrium. You know what it means? Snake laid an egg and a bird came out. No. Sorry. You know, if you could show us, you know, then I would believe it. It's a joke. It's ridiculous. And yet the whole scientific community just, you know, were uh, beside themselves. Absolutely ridiculous. We look at the epistle of the Corinthians today. The apostle Paul claimed for himself none of these things. Now, he had them all previously, didn't he? What does he say? Look at Philippians 3, 7. Or listen along. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish is a little stronger in the original language, by the way. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means... I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward for those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Any confusion about what this guy's focus is? Any misgivings about his, his perspective? His perspective of himself. The humility that comes across as he's laying out these lofty goals for people to follow. He tells you who he is. This is Paul following Jesus. This is the exact attitude that he models for the Corinthians in the hopes that they would recognize the real issues in their church and also in themselves, that they would see what's going on. And so we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 2 in three sections. Verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul's entrance to the Corinthians. Verse 4, Paul's example to the Corinthians. And then verse 5, Paul's endowment to the Corinthians, his gift for them. The situation of Paul's visit at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul describes his first trip to Corinth. He's really trying here to give the people some perspective of who he is and who God is, and more importantly, what God is doing, what, what God is intending to do towards them. Do you ever struggle with that? What is God doing in my life? What is he intending for me? And there are times where it's just a question mark for you, where you don't really know, and that is awkward and difficult. And pain, and, but let me tell you, when you don't know what's going on, what the Lord is doing, there's a reason for it. There's a purpose. Sometimes if he were to tell you, you wouldn't get it. And at other times, your being told X, Y, and Z would interfere with the growth and the issues that you have in your life. Jesus, again, good advice. John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Paul's entrance to the Corinthians in verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech 
or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Now, Paul's entrance to these Corinthians coming to the city. Some of the details in these first three verses were by decision. He decided, okay, this is how I'm going to go forward. This is how I'm going to present myself as I preach the gospel. And some of them were outside of his control. He tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven six that he was untrained in the Greek language. So the language was not his forte. That was even probably to some extent, at least in oratory, speaking to people publicly, he was having a tough time. It was not what he was used to. And the Corinthians in both 1 and 2 Corinthians are critical of the way that Paul speaks their language for whatever reason. It was something that they picked up on and it bothered them. Of course, you know, you realize speaking well is never a justification of the things said or not said. That's the important part, isn't it? Paul even here, he dispenses with wisdom. And again, that would be human wisdom, not wisdom from God. Wisdom, human wisdom. How do we? Human wisdom for us, the ability to weaponize an idea, to take an idea and put it in a format that will work for my benefit, regardless of what happens to you. I think that's a good example of, of uh, human wisdom, to move or to manipulate people to your purpose. Which things, honestly, folks, you and I, we are surrounded by this 24 hours a day and seven days a week. They call it advertising. And we are subject to it. You can't walk out on the street or turn on your phone or look at the television or listen to the radio. Does anybody listen to radio anymore? Anyway, it's, it's the truth. Uh, these devices are all around us. And some are more objectionable than others. I mean, if I purchase a lottery ticket, which I don't do, by the way. The Lord and I had a conversation. I don't buy lottery tickets. But if you do it, you do it at your own choosing. You choose to do it. There is a chance, albeit a very tiny, minuscule chance, that you will receive some benefit or another. Whereas... If you email your social security number to receive your long-dispatched inheritance loss in the account of a distant African nation, the chances are much less in your favor. It's probably going to cause you harm. And that's not to say that every person employing smooth talk and a good story is really seeking to deceive. Not necessarily, but at best, at best, the, the benefit you receive is going to be very superficial. It's going to be the surface. Excellence of speech and human wisdom may be very persuasive. They are. They're seductive sometimes. But however, the substance, the impact of what we really need, the issue of a lasting and eternal benefit, okay? The work of God is what we need. And it is a much deeper thing. That thing that we desperately long for, the declaration the testimony of God or the mystery of God. And the Greek language there in verse 1 can maybe mean either one, but mystery maybe is better. Uh, the, the mystery of God. Let me ask you a question. Could there be any more significant idea in the history of the world than the testimony of God Almighty? The testimony of God is a thing spoken by any person, should be sought. The single thing that depends and demands to be shared. The thing that every person, old and young, man and woman, rich and poor, should crave to hear. Because it is the issue of life. It is the indispensable truth. The absence of which we can never be compensated for. That is the testimony of God. His mystery. I got to think that one of the greatest tragedies of this world is that men and women can turn up their noses at God's truth and not realize that they have committed so great an act of rebellion as to defy description. There's no way to describe it, but they do it every day. They're not shy, not shy. Living in a place, and I think one of my favorite bumper stickers is a description of our culture, okay? Okay. 
perfect description of the culture that you and I share. I can tell you're lying because I can see your lips moving. I mean, that's it. That's Western culture in the 21st century. In contrast to that, the testimony of God is bread to the starving. It's water in a desert place. It's land in the sight of a drowning man. It is light in the darkness. At the same time, folks, we recognize that there's a warfare here in in our world. Um, And sometimes it's more prevalent than others. You know, it's interesting lately. I can't watch the news anymore. It makes me kind of ill. And I'm being serious. I just can't watch it Uh, from any source. I don't want to hear. It's just disturbing. And, and I really, personally, I believe it's the spiritual warfare going on in a mega scale. And I pray. I pray for these people. I pray for all the people involved in government and journalism that I don't know who they are. I don't know their names. I pray for them. God, help us. Re- you know, God, reveal people who are liars and deceivers for what they really are. Reveal these people and bring about a just outcome from the situations and the turmoil. You know, it's just... It's kind of crazy to watch people's lives get splattered by, by the press media and stuff, you know, and it, it's really disturbing in so many ways. The confusion that we suffer here is powerful, so much so that we as believers will hesitate to speak the truth of God. Why? Why would we do that? Because we fear what people will think. Think about that. That's not right. People don't just hesitate. They go years and decades failing to speak the truth of the message of God for fear of how they will be received. Not not how the message will be received, for fear of how they will be looked upon. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't worry about such things? In verse 2, he amplifies his statement. He actually says two specific things. Number one, that he determined to know nothing else than the message of God, the testimony of God, the mystery of God. He determined to know nothing else. Now, question, does he, in fact, know nothing else? No. In fact, this guy is an extremely learned man, very educated intellectual equal of any person of his age and probably many other ages as well. And probably he makes this decision on how to approach the men and the women of the city. He has a perspective. He wants to limit the focus of what he's trying to share. He determined to know nothing else. We might describe this approach as the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what Paul did when he decided to know nothing else but Christ crucified. Amen. When you have an opportunity that's so amazing as to speak to a willing ear of the testimony of God, you don't want to dilute the substance with opinions or commentary or supporting perspective, hypothetical speculation. You figure you only have so many words to speak to any person listening. Make them count as I go on for an hour. This is what Paul proposed to do. Fewer things you speak, the better and more clear the opportunity. When I share the gospel, I don't want, I want to narrow the focus. I don't want to talk about Evolution and politics, traditions, abortions, meditation, yoga, or UFOs, or or any other thing. I want to hit the target right in the heart. I want to be specific and direct. He says in verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Number two, and the most important thing here, Paul is identifying what he said as the testimony or the mystery of God in verse 1, as Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the testimony of God. This is the mystery of the ages. To have a right understanding of the Lord's intention here, we really have to kind of unpack 
the phrase Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul says Jesus Christ, he intends all that Jesus is from Genesis to Revelation. Even though some of those books of the Bible have not been written yet by 54, 56 AD, um, the truth is available by the Holy Spirit. Who Jesus is will not change by the completion of the New Testament. Most of the details we need to understand have been laid out very clearly in the Old Testament books. All we need to do is take it up, seek God's spirit to lead us into all truth, as John 16 says he will. When he says Jesus Christ, he means God in human flesh, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, this is really interesting to me. Recently, I had the opportunity to teach uh, the Tuesday night Bible study in the book of Acts. I taught like the middle section of Acts chapter 9, which is just directly following Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. And when he was in the city of Damascus, and it tells us that he spent a couple of days kind of recuperating after the Lord spoke to him on the Damascus Road, and he didn't eat anything during that time, and then he got water baptized. And then following that, it says immediately he preached in the synagogues of Damascus that Christ, that he is the Son of God. Now, I want you to notice something about that statement. He didn't preach that Jesus was the Messiah, which is true, of course, and very important to Jewish people. But he preached that the Christ, that whoever the Messiah was, is the Son of God. He preached that the Messiah was God. First thing, first thing, immediately he was moved. He was convicted. He's preaching that Jesus is God. For, for, for him, obviously, folks, this is not a debatable issue. He totally got it right now. He understood. With his theological background, his grasp of the Old Testament, he put the pieces together. He connected the dots. Jesus is God. And he, the first thing he said, it goes on to say in like uh, Acts 9.22 that he preached that Jesus was the Christ. But Jesus is God. Essential. Important. To the extent that he was willing to put his own life on the line, which he nearly did in Damascus before he got away. And eventually he would, at Nero's order in Rome, lose his life to present the truth of who Jesus is. Second Timothy 4, 7, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And he did one step at a time. Again, verse two, I determined not to know anything except among you, except Jesus Christ. When he says Jesus Christ, all of this includes that name, God, the creator, the friend of Abraham, the one who wrestled with Jacob, the prophet, like Moses, the angel whose name was wonderful and appeared to Moses, or rather Samson's parents, Isaiah's hope of the Gentiles, the fireproof companion of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Messiah, the prince of Daniel's chapter 9, 70 weeks. He is the one foretold by the word of God to fulfill the promise of the ages, the promise that God made for you, for you, your promise. He's the one, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And all that that intends, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman whose heel was bruised, the lamb of God that he himself would provide in Genesis 22, the victim of Psalm 22, the Holy One that the Lord would not allow to see corruption in Psalm 16, the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53 that wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The one foreshadowed in the book of Jonah as raised from the dead after three days in the heart of the earth. Yes, even the resurrection is included in Jesus Christ and him crucified. How could it be? It doesn't say anything about resurrection. Well, Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. It's all there. It's all there. So when Paul determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, he was determined to impart a great deal. For the Lord, good things come in small packages. Paul describes the situation his situation in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I mean, just practically speaking, 
It's really understandable. The guy was having a very difficult trip. And although there was fruit, people got saved in Philippi. God was doing a work in Philippi. And then he got thrown in jail in Philippi. And then he got beat. And then the jailer accepted the Lord. That's pretty good. You know, except for the beating and the jailing. And then he got chased out of Berea, got chased out of Thessalonica. And in Athens, not much. But here he was by himself, alone in the city of Corinth, in fear and in much trembling. His language skills, by his own admission, not very great. You know, sometimes I think if we had our way, every ministry opportunity that the Lord directs would take place at a vacation timeshare somewhere off the coast of Spain, which would be great. I'm sure, you know, we get a lot more participation in events. We, we need to not miss the fact that God is also continuing to work on us and to change us and to affect us, to affect who we are inside. And of all the things that we're learning, the best of the bunch is to learning to trust the Lord. And when times are tough, we trust the Lord. And when things don't go according to plan, which is like what, every day? Trust the Lord. And when all else fails, trust the Lord. I love Psalm 61. David says, from the ends of the earth, when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's it, man. That's the deal. And that's what Paul does. How should Paul undertake to impart all of this, this important truth that God has placed in him? In verse 4, Paul's example to the Corinthians. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In the first part of verse 4 here, Paul is re-emphasizing his statement from verse 1. That he didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom. And he, a little more specifically, Dr. Lightfoot, who's a really smart guy, says, not in excellence of rhetorical display or philosophical subtlety. Say that three times fast. Then he kind of, Paul really, by the Holy Spirit, fine-tunes the issue in verse 4. He did not employ persuasive words of human wisdom. Key word there, human We don't want to avoid persuasive wisdom, but persuasive words of human wisdom is something else entirely. And the difference might be human wisdom is lacking the eternal connection. And if it's missing the big picture, it kind of begs the question, how wise can it really be? Not very. So this he did not use. He marks the contrast in in verse 4 there with the word but but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What did he do? This phrase, demonstration of the Spirit, is really interesting to me in that it indicates a lot of stuff. You know, you can say, well, it's just the demonstration of the Spirit. Well, it indicates that Paul is not entirely in control of the opportunity as it goes forward. The Holy Spirit of God does not operate at the instruction of men. The Holy Spirit of God does not operate at the instruction of men. You might get a very different idea watching some word faith preachers from time to time. To hear them talk, they're in charge of God and he just kind of wanders around from place to place doing their bidding. Which is pretty scary and tragic all at the same time. To be perfectly honest, the reverse is really true. In the best possible situation, I'm here to follow the direction of the Spirit of Christ. So Paul is indicating here that he's not actually driving the car. At best, he's riding shotgun, and if not, in the back seat somewhere. God is moving the ball down the road. He's getting the job done. It is the Spirit who demonstrates his power. He may allow me to be a part of the opportunity, which, frankly, I just, I love that. That is the greatest, to be there when God does something. And, you know, it doesn't always show up on the, out. you know, there's no, light doesn't come down from the ceiling. And you don't hear, oh, it doesn't work that way. God, God can be doing something. There, 
teaching a Bible study, okay? When you stand up in front of people and you're talking and like that, trying not to make a fool out of yourself. There are moments in the teaching of a Bible study where you may have a sense of God's hand upon the situation, where it's powerful, you know? And now, the other thing is, of course, you've got to realize if you're going to teach a Bible study, and all of you should, to somebody, your kids, let the Lord lead and direct you accordingly. God can use you. His Spirit can be working and touch the hearts of people without you even knowing it. And sometimes it's important for God to work in that way as well. There is nothing like having the Holy Spirit of God work through you. I mean, it'll give you chicken skin all over your body. It's just like unbelievably amazing. The whole time I served in youth ministry, that was the focus of my life, to get these kids in a place where the Spirit of God would work through them because I knew that if that took place, the world had nothing to offer them. There is nothing that could compare with the kind of amazing experience of having God's Spirit work through you in a practical way. Touch the hearts of people. Paul needs the Corinthians to be clear about who's in charge. This is not our show. And if it is, it needs to be canceled right away. He writes, but in demonstration of the Spirit. This is nothing less than God's Spirit at work in our midst. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus gives us some, an outline, kind of a thumbnail sketch of the work of the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now, bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. This is the work of God's Holy Spirit in a nutshell. And he adds one more thing in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. How do we understand this issue of power? The, the Greek word is dunamis, right? From which, you know, courtesy of Alfred Nobel, we get dynamite. Or maybe Jimmy Walker, dynamite. But you got, you're going to be older for that. You wouldn't get that. Anyway, dunamis, power. Uh, the obvious thing would be to point to the signs of an apostle that were present in Paul's ministry. Gifts of healings, uh, miracles, the gift of faith. Right after leaving Corinth, Paul travels back to Turkey in southwestern Turkey, the city of Ephesus. Uh, God, in, in Acts 19.11, worked unusual miracles by the hands of, of Paul. I love that. As opposed to the average everyday miracles that God does. He did unusual miracles. And their reference really is people took handkerchiefs from Paul and got healed. Just, I mean, craziness. Things only God can do. In truth, those signs and wonders are the smallest part of the big picture. God does miracles to this day. And the greatest miracle, I have to believe, is when a person comes to faith in Christ. Think about yourself, okay? Think about when you came to believe in Jesus. The very first time that the Lord spoke to you through the scripture and you knew that it was God. First week of July... In Santa Monica in 1976, I sat there after reading the first chapter of the Gospel of John. I put my Bible down on all of my record albums, and I just stared at it. And I thought, what am I going to do? Everything I know is wrong. And I knew it. No one was ever going to persuade me that the Bible was not the Word of God. God had spoken to me, and I knew it. Wild. Amazing. People come to faith in Christ, but not because they've seen some miracle. I'm always amazed when people see miraculous events and still they do not believe. I shouldn't be amazed. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Just as Paul wrote to the Romans during 
the trip, when again, he was staying in Corinth, he's asking the Corinthians to remember. He wrote Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, the word of God, the power of God that changes the world one person at a time. Isn't it cool? God didn't just save whole countries or nations or everybody alive at one time. One single person at a time, God changes the whole world forever. Just wild. God reveals himself to every single person, bringing them to a point of decision to recognize that God is real and God is here and God is good and you, you have a choice to make. Even as a believer, you choose every day whether to follow the inclination of your own crooked mind or the bent of this world or maybe even something worse. Or will you choose the truth of God, which is the cross? It is the cross, not an easy choice, because the cross takes no prisoners. There are no survivors at the cross. Luke 9.23, Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To the world, of course, I mean, this is no choice. The world is in love with its delusion. It's addicted to its delusion. It is dependent on its delusion. No, 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 no. Hey, we've got this. We've got this. I know the world looks like a mess. It looks really terrible. It's okay. It's always darkest right before the dawn. And we're going to get this together. We're going to, the world is full of beautiful people. Do you ever notice how every effective lie has a little truth in it? The world is full of beautiful people. They're all created in the image of God. They're beautiful. They're amazing. No matter how messed up they are, God loves these people. We're going to do it. We're going to put our heads together. We've got the best minds. We're going to figure it out. We've done it before. The war on poverty, the war on drugs. How's that working out for you? You know, the French Revolution, the Cultural Revolution, the Armenian Genocide, the Holocaust. Yeah, we can do it. We're going to turn this place into the face of the moon real quick. And, you know, the, the disease is bad, but the cure will kill you for sure. And it's no wonder. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In conclusion here, Paul needs to leave the Corinthians with something much greater than himself. And he knows that. Something to move their understanding past their own ability. Something better than his ideas and his words. And because of the Holy Spirit of God, he can do just that. Paul's endowment to the Corinthians in verse 5. Verse 5 is a natural conclusion to Paul's statement to begin chapter 2. It's the why to Paul's what. He's told us how God directed him to reach out to the people of this advanced, cosmopolitan, booming city filled with movers and shakers, at least, you know, people who in their own minds were equal to any. Paul doesn't claim to be better. He doesn't claim to be skilled. He doesn't claim to be more informed. What he does claim is to be the servant of the Most High God who has no interest in playing their silly games. He offers no compromise. What does God offer? Only an unconditional surrender. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, folks, the 21st century is at war with the Bible. It's at war with the Word of God. The 20th century was at war with the Bible, but now it's gone. And the Bible's still here. The Word of God is here. The reality is that it's not a fair fight. It's not face-to-face standoff. Many of the greatest warriors in opposition to the truth claim to be on our side. And some of them, I think, really believe it. To put one's faith even partially in the wisdom of men is to put your faith in man. It's a bad bargain. Still, 
these people, they're not your enemy. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, Although we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. My enemy is the source and the embodiment of any idea that seeks to take the place of the truth of God Almighty as an anchor to the soul. For either myself or for any of the children of God, this is a long war. The battles are floor to ceiling and wall to wall. But the purpose of God does not change. And as long as we are anchored to his truth by his Holy Spirit, he will provide what we need. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, it goes on, stand therefore, amen. The wisdom of men can be tremendously appealing. It's seductive. It's often reasonable to my mind, which is kind of scary. Sometimes satisfying to unravel and understand. It's gratifying to operate. It's justifying in its function. Other people will applaud you for having the wisdom of man. They will appreciate you. If you're a single guy, cute girls will want to talk to you. It's true. It is the truth. Don't hang out on a college campus. God help you. On top of all that, and this is maybe the worst thing, it makes me seem smarter than I really am. And I kind of understand it. It's appealing. Everybody wants to seem smarter than they really are. And then we work at it. We want people to think that we're smarter and better. And even better looking than we really are. God help us. We got problems. There's no denying that people are really amazing. They are, from the human perspective, brilliant, gifted, competent, charismatic, convincing, captivating, mesmerizing. The problem with all that is that they're also not to be trusted. Do not trust people. The prophet Jeremiah was a man with some experience with people. And he said, the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. Who can even know it? Now, in contrast to that, to have my faith anchored securely in the power of God is personally, for me, in 42 years, an opportunity I've never regretted once, not even close, not even close. Since the very first day that God revealed himself to me in John chapter 1, God spoke to me and I understood. And you know, Jesus lays this out in the Gospels. He explains to people how it happens. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You want to do what God says? Do what God says. He will show you where the word comes from. He'll give you the source. Same thing. John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You keep my commandments, I'm going to show up. I will show up. I will reveal myself. And three other times in John 14, says the same thing over and over and over. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes his conversion. Just When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Wait a minute. How did God call Paul through his grace? How did that happen? Wasn't it, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's not exactly what you might call a classic invitation. But that was it. He got it. He totally got it. Later, at the end of Jesus' ministry, as he traveled through the city of Jericho, he called out to a little man who had climbed up a tree, of all things. 
in Luke 19.5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, he saw him, and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. Changed the guy's life on the spot. Jesus didn't say another word to him. He got down, started giving away his stuff, apologizing for the crimes and confessing his sins right there in the middle of the street. Do you think he didn't get saved? The word of God with power. Amazing. That was it. He was never, that guy was never the same. Now, he was probably tempted to be similar to the same or in the same neighborhood to take back some of his stuff. And there, you know, commitment. There's no such thing as partially saved. Partially saved is mostly going to hell. And there is no connection to abiding to Christ. And that is how I need to appear as I come into the presence of the Lord. I'm abiding in Christ. I must, my faith must be invested in the power of God, which is the gospel of God. God's ability to change the lives of broken men and women with his word, by his spirit. Have you ever gone street witnessing? You ought to try it sometime. It's craziness. You go out there and you talk to 20 people, 25 people, 30, 40 people. One person walks up and you say, would you like to know Jesus? And all of a sudden, they're like riveted. And you can see it in their eyes. God just nailed them between the eyes. And you're like, oh boy. It's almost like fishing. You're feeling like, whoa there. You know, it's amazing. It really is. And you recognize it. And they don't always pray with you right there. They don't always pray and give their lives to Christ. But you can tell. You know, there's just an, an imprint upon them. And it is the most amazing thing. Now, when he says here, he talks about wisdom specifically. This scripture is not indicating that we should abandon the study of scripture, or biblical theology, or even sound science that provides a human perspective of how God works and in the creation, especially when it reveals and confirms the facts of Scripture. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be always ready to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that lies within you with meekness and fear. And I want to be able to do that. Of course, I can only carry so much information around with me, which as I get older gets less and less and less, unfortunately. And I have to tell people a lot of times, well, I don't know. And that's okay. Because that also is an example. It's the truth. We want to examine ourselves. Folks, if we're going to be critically minded toward others, and we should be, we should at least have the honesty to be critically minded of ourselves, as was the Apostle Paul. Paul's entrance to the Corinthians was not with human wisdom or excellency of speech. His example to the Corinthians was humility and the truth of God. And his endowment to the Corinthians was the power of God to change lives. As you read the epistles of Paul, remember who wrote them. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. did. Remember the power of God that he has revealed in your life, that he's shown you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Apparently that did it. That did it. In John chapter 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answered Jesus and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. How can a young man cleanse his way? Psalm 119 verse 9 says, by taking heed according to your word. May the Lord help us to do so day by day. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us today, for your spirit that breathes life into us. And Father, into our gathering as we gather in your name, that you're actually present with us in such an amazing way. And Father, we look forward. We're not fearful. We have confidence in your ability. Lord, you have great things in store for us in the days to come. Help us, Lord, to be bold. Fill us, Father, with your spirit. Strengthen us, Lord, as your witnesses in all that we do. Bless our efforts. Guide us. 
And Father, touch the hearts of those who don't know you. As we're all praying together and every head is bowed, if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you've walked away from the Lord or you failed desperately and you know and you want to recommit yourself to him, we want to give you an opportunity to connect with the Lord. We want to actually, in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you to repeat after me to surrender yourself into his hands unconditional surrender to the Lord. He has amazing things in store for you. He loves you dearly. And if the Lord has spoken to your heart by his word, he's prompting you to surrender yourself to him. And if that's your desire, I'd like to ask you to repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And give me a new life in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.